I'm Chris McAlilly. And I'm Eddie Rester. Welcome to The Wait. When we started this podcast back in 2020, it kind of had a specific direction that we had built toward that the that the pandemic really upended for us very quickly. Our tribe, our denomination, uh, was already beginning to move towards uh, division over over the issue of human sexuality. And so we wanted to have uh, people help us with that conversation to help people maybe understand what they believed or didn't believe in that conversation. Yeah. So since then, we we did a range of different things. If you've been following the podcast, um, we've talked about mental health. We've talked about uh, racism and um, we talked about food and creation care and how to raise your children, just a whole range of, of important weighty topics. But we wanted to circle back around to, to this one because I think the church's relationship with the LGBTQ community is one that it's a central conversation in how the church navigates this particular cultural moment. And we're pastors in a college town, which means, and in Mississippi, which means that we have, we pastor and we're in relationship with folks who are very progressive, folks who um, consider themselves very conservative. And so we wanted to, that's that's just our perspective. We that's encounter our, folks who fall all over the range of understandings and beliefs around the conversation of human sexuality. Yeah, and I'll tell you what I get frustrated by. What I get frustrated by in, and we talk about this in the intro of the podcast, is is the tone. Right. And um, we, we encounter folks that have very strong convictions, and that's a good thing. It's good to have strong convictions. However... Yeah, and I think I think what we're shooting for always on the podcast, not just in this conversation, but in every conversation, is is how to honor the weight of a person's concern. And we're listening for a particular, not just a conviction or or a, a position, but a posture um, where there's some humility, there's intellectual honesty, and and all the rest. I came across an article in this conversation about human sexuality from a guy named Wes Hill, who you'll hear in the series called the tears of things. And if you want to you know, know about our perspective in the conversation, go read, go read that article. We make no attempt to be exhaustive or comprehensive in this conversation. That's not what we're trying to do. Our aim's not to persuade you uh, to take one side or the other. You what, already know what you, you already know what you believe, <laughs> yeah. or you, or maybe maybe you're exploring and you need to hear people of conviction on both sides sharing what they believe. So we're going to hear from folks progressive, conservative, folks kind of threading the needle between the two. What we want to do is to help you better understand your own views and the views of those you may disagree with. Yeah. So you're going to hear from some church leaders um, who have um, perspectives on biblical authority and biblical interpretation. Uh, You're going to hear from gay and lesbian people who disagree um, uh, in kind of where they fall and and how they think about their relationship with the church and uh, with the Bible and and all the rest. And you're going to maybe probably you're going to feel uncomfortable because we've, you know, and you'll probably be challenged because I think that that's, this is a challenging conversation. And to be quite honest, we hope you feel some discomfort because we've felt it as we've talked to these folks, we haven't tried to push, fight, spin it. We've wanted people to be able to present uh, faithfully where they are. And we hope that you hear that. And if you hear something that you're like, I, I disagree with that, go to the next podcast that, that we'll release or wait for what we're going to release or go back to the one that we just released. We're hoping to to offer you a, a wide range of conversation on this. So we're going to do a slightly different format here. We're going to do over the next three weeks, a Monday and Thursday release. And um, it'll be almost like a bit of a mini, mini series. 
And so we hope that, that you enjoy it. We're, it's not exhaustive. So there's gonna, we're going to leave people out. We're going to leave perspectives out. We can't do, do everything in this series, but we'll come back to this conversation. So if there's somebody else we need to talk to that you, you think is important, let us know. Um, send us an email, um, you know, send us a direct message on social media. Let us, let us know, comment, share it with folks who you think uh, would, would be interested in, in this particular way of having the conversation. We are thankful that you're in the journey and in the conversation with us. So thank you for being with us each and every week. We started this podcast out of frustration with the tone of American Christianity. There are some topics too heavy for sermons and sound bites. We wanted to create a space with a bit more recognition of the difficulty, nuance, and complexity of cultural issues. If you've given up on the church, we want to give you a place to encounter a fresh perspective on the wisdom of the Christian tradition in our conversations about politics, race, sexuality, art, and mental health. If you're a Christian seeking a better way to talk about the important issues of the day with more humility, charity, and intellectual honesty that grapples with scripture and the church's tradition in a way that doesn't dismiss people out of hand, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Wait. We're here today with Adam Hamilton. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Chris, I'm so glad to be there. Eddie, good to be with you guys. Uh, Always appreciate the conversations. How are how are you guys holding up in in Kansas City th- these days? You know we're doing we're doing okay. We're doing pretty well um, as a congregation. You know things are going great, but at the same time, and great, I mean, you know, it's a great time to be in ministry with people who are looking for hope and looking for encouragement. Uh, we're struggling in try in terms of uh, you know we had a plan to really launch into getting everybody back in the fall, and we knew we wouldn't get everybody back. But we'd get a number of people back in person, but then the Delta variant you know, shows up and we're, you know, we've had several deaths, multiple deaths in the last couple of weeks, not people who were necessarily act. Some of them were active. Some of them were not, uh, most of them were family members of others, but, um, you know, it's led us to slow down just a little bit and to, um, to, you know, really reemphasize wear your masks, um, for those who hadn't been vaccinated, we had a huge emphasis on vaccination for those who hadn't been, uh, you know, to say, Hey, really, we're going to strongly encourage you to do this. But again, I think in times of crisis and in times where, uh, where the world is in a period of upheaval, the church is often its best. And we have a chance to be the incarnation of Christ in the world. And I think you know, we've been trying to do that. Well, we, you know, the last time we, we spoke with you on the podcast, we were talking about that ongoing Very conversation. Yeah. yeah. Today we want yeah. to um, kind of come back to uh, a conversation that you've really been on uh, kind of the, at the center of within our particular denomination, but it, it expands way beyond just one tribe or one church to how uh, the church, particularly in North America, uh, attempts to evangelize and to be in ministry with uh, folks in, in our culture. I wonder if you would just maybe, you know, talk a little bit as we, we begin this conversation on human sexuality about, about how you understand the cultural moment that, that we're in and, and the response that the church uh, needs to have uh, right now? I think we're kind of confused as a culture right now. Partly, um, partly we have conversations happening when it comes to uh, gay and lesbian people, transgender people, and the church is, you know, the, the church is in this huge debate, uh, not just the United Methodists, but across denominations as to how will we look at 
um, how we look at people who are gay and lesbian. How do we look at God's children who are gay and lesbian? How do we, how we think about human sexuality? And so there's, there's that central conversation that started with gay and lesbian people, then it moves to transgender, uh, which is a little more confusing for, for people. And then we have a whole array of um, sexualities and orientations and gender questions that most of us weren't thinking about a few years ago. And, and they tend to be, you know, they're not all the same conversation. And I think it leaves us uh, scratching our heads. It leaves us uh, a bit confused when it comes to gay and lesbian people. I think what's interesting is I have conversations with pastors of more conservative churches and, you know, some of them say things like, Adam, thank you for the questions you're raising. Thank you for the things you're saying, because I can't say that in my church or I would lose my ordination or I would lose my job, but I feel the same things that you're saying. And, you know, I care about people and I know this is not as simple as God said it. I believe it. that settles it. And so, you know, so I, I was talking with a, a group of, uh, well, I won't name the denomination, but a more conservative denomination recently, some of their, some of their leaders in their denomination. And they're like, you know, we're just 10 years behind you as Methodist with the conversations. We're having the conversations. We're going to be where you are in 10 years. And, you know, we're preparing ourselves for that and trying to figure out what does this look like? And, and, you know, the Episcopalians were 10 or 15 years before the United Methodists were, but I think we're to, so there's, there's that, the fact that it, it is a conversation in every church uh, at some level. And then there are the other conversations about how do we understand trans, transgender? And then <clears throat> what do we think of, um, uh, you know, how we define gender? <clears throat> Excuse me. And then we're thinking about things like uh, uh, polyamory. And, and then, I, so it, it really, there are pieces of it where I feel like we're afraid, you know, we're, well, I, I'm going to stop there. I know a lot of times we're going to get into the mission of the church and your position and how you have moved towards that over the years. But I know a lot of times when you're talking about the cultural moment, you you talk about the data that's coming from Barna or the Pew Research Group or, or Gallup. Um, when you introduce the conversation or as you're having the conversation, why, why is that important to you? Why is that helpful for you? Sure. <clears throat> I think, um, I think first of all, it's good to know where are the people that you're trying to reach and where are the people in your pews? And we don't do ethics in the church based on polls. So our ethics are based on theological reasoning, based upon what we find in the biblical text. And so you know, it's not like, well, let's take a poll and, and vote on <clears throat> how many people like, you know, this particular ethical perspective or that one. But it is important to know the people that you're trying to reach, this is how they think. This is how they're seeing the world. And there are times where, you know, people say, well, uh, you know, you're, as you become more inclusive, you're just capitulating to the culture. Well, sometimes the culture leads the church. And we see that we saw that in civil rights, where while there were church people who were involved on the on the forefront of civil rights, there were a whole lot of other people who weren't necessarily, you know, committed church people, but who were people who said this is this is not right, racism is not right, and we've got to do something about it. And I find uh, oftentimes it's younger generations who are also looking at what's happening in the world and seeing injustice and seeing unfairness to their friends or their family members. And saying this cannot be consistent with uh, Jesus and and what He taught us about loving our neighbor and and how we're meant to love our lives and 
So there are times where people are outside the church actually have a fresh perspective on what's happening. And so I think it's important for us to know, you know, what are the people in the pews saying? What are the, what are the people in the country saying, you know, where, where are their perspectives on things? And there we find a huge shift when it comes to same gender marriage. Um, over the years, we all know this, but, you know, a, a majority of Americans today, you know, favor the right for a gay and lesbian people to be married. Obviously that right has been extended thanks to the ruling of the Supreme court. So how people look at this, and that's only going to continue. I don't, I don't see that going backwards. And I think what that also means is that when you're doing evangelism, so this is not about evangelism. This is about what's right and wrong and what's ethical and not ethical and what God's love looks like. But, but when we are thinking about being the church for um, our culture and our community, uh, the church ideally would be leading the way, not following in asking, you know, what, what does love look like? And I think the church to the degree that we're talking about love and justice you know, which is one way of framing the conversation and, uh, and the world around us looks and says, wait, I thought y'all were supposed to stand for this stuff. And instead, you know, your, you know, your position is actually harming people uh, who I care about. I think it'll be harder and harder for people to do evangelism, uh, for people to do, to reach out to their community, to be salt and light when it doesn't look like the light is very bright in the church. And this is just one area. And again, it depends on, you know, if you're, if you're in communities where largely people hold much more conservative and traditional views, you might be in sync with, you know, you might be in sync with your community and doing evangelism might, you know, they, they might prefer to come to a church that holds their, you know, their current values. But um, yeah, so that's where I think we're at as a, and, you know, and why the numbers I think matter, just helping understand where are people, it's not how we do ethics. So is based on a, on a poll. I see, you know, one of the things I think that you've drawn out at over time when looking at this data is, is um, and you've, you've said some pretty strong things about this in terms of young people. I mean, I think, I can't remember which book it, w- it was where you, you referenced, I think something like a 2007 Barna study where 91% of young people view Christianity is anti-homosexual. And you mentioned the ways in which you feel like that's going to lead young adults away from the church. One place, I can, and again, I can't remember where I drew this quote, but this, this, is, um, this is a quotation from your writing over a decade ago. Churches that are unwilling to see this issue with greater compassion and love will lose an entire generation of young people whose views on homosexuality look very different from that of their parents. I wonder if you'd just expand upon that. I mean, that's a strong, that's a strong statement, but, um, but one I, you're, you're clearly f- quite committed to and, 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 um, and believe very strongly. Could you just expand upon it? Sure. And I think that was in uh, seeing gray in a world of black and white uh, book that I wrote in 2008, I think something like that. Um, so I, I you know, we have seen this to be the case. We, you know, we see younger generations not as engaged in church. Um, you know, we're all concerned about that. And I don't think it's just about uh, same-gender marriage and homosexuality. It's it's about a whole host of other things, including a postmodern way of thinking about the world. But But what I find is that for many young people, the issue is settled already. Uh, you know, they they have Oh, and even if they're people who grew up in the church and maybe they you know have some value of the Bible and you know have some faith, they look at this and say, okay, whatever the Bible says, it can't it can't mean what it how it, it's often interpreted, you know, what it's often interpreted to say, because I know this person and I know their heart and I know who they are, and I can't imagine God rejecting my friend or wishing that 
that people would uh, would put them to death, uh, which is you know when we go to the holiness code in Leviticus. Um, and so I think I think we have a generation of young people who are like, you know, if that's what the church stands for, and unfortunately that's what it seems like the church stands for today, because that is the that is the conversation that that just soaks up all the oxygen in the room. Major debates in congregations, you know, positions being put out. We're going to tell you, you know, who will marry and who we won't marry, and and this is what we believe about marriage. And so now, something that never showed up in any creeds has become an essential of the faith for many churches, and that is that we have to be able to say that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. For a lot of young people, that's simply that that stands outside of their way of thinking about people and about Christ and about the church. And I think an increasing number of them are going to say, that is not the church I want to be a part of. And what we find at Resurrection is, you know, we have been clear, you know, that our welcome is wide for everyone. And almost everywhere I go, I have, you know, I'll be in a restaurant, I'll be, you know, wherever, wherever I'm at, somebody will come up to me and say, I want you to know how grateful I am for the way, for the stance you've taken for the way that you speak up because my daughter, my son, my friend, my partner. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to come to church if you're more inclusive. It, it does mean, I think, that if you're, if you're vocally saying, you know, holding to a position that says that, uh, that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching, there will be an increasing number of people who will just say, yeah, that's not a church that I'm interested in. So help us understand a little bit about uh, your position on uh, the inclusion of the LBGTQ plus uh, community. A lot of people would say, well, uh, Adam, that's not scriptural. That's not, uh, that's not with, that doesn't line up with church history. So just kind of sketch a little bit for us about your position uh, you know, what you believe and, and why is it that you believe that? What what guides you sure. in that belief? Yep. Well, so scripture, let's start with scripture. And I wrote a book several years ago called Making Sense of the Bible as a way of just helping prime the pump for people to have conversations about this. And it wasn't, you know, there's only one chapter on homosexuality. The rest of the chapters are just about, you know, what is the Bible? How did it come to us? You know, and what what do we mean when we say inspired uh, why many of us do not look at the Bible as inerrant and infallible, that those are terms that have been imposed on the Bible by later generations, um, and, and you know how we value and, and love Scripture, and at the same time ask questions of it. Right now I'm preaching, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Scripture, then come to, back to your question. Right now I'm preaching through the book of Romans, which is such an awesome book, and a book that many pastors don't want to preach through. I've asked, you know, we'll preach from our favorite texts from it, but we don't preach, you know, all the way through it. And I've asked, and in 31 years, the first time I preached all the way through it, although I preached from it many times, and I asked our entire congregation to read it. So we're reading it together, you know, verse by verse every day. We're memorizing uh, a verse a week from the book of Romans. And when you get in there, part of what you find is it's complex. And part of what you see is, you know, Paul's dictating the book to Tertius, who's writing it down. And, and these are complex theological arguments Paul's making. And you wonder what's lost in the translation. <clears throat> You wonder, you know, there are moments where you just want to say, hey, wait, Paul, do you really mean that? And, and I'll, an example would be that our friends, uh, and some of your listeners may be people who hold to the doctrine of predestination or even double predestination or determinism uh, or hyper-Calvinism. It goes by a number of names. but And they, they base that on 
the book of Romans in part and, you know, key verses in there. And, you know, it's interesting, John Wesley read that. And I think it was Bishop Jones who told me this. We were talking about this one time and, and he said, yeah, you know, Wesley's way of looking at those passages that deal with predestination is, you know, well, whatever they mean, they can't mean that. <laughs> and so it wasn't that he had you know necessarily a great way of unpacking all of those. I, I mean, he did, he talked about all of them, but it was like, but we know that because because of a broader scriptural principle, they cannot mean that God has predestined people to go to hell before they were even born. That cannot be right. And this is a you know key part of Wesleyanism is this Armenian spirit of you know free will and people you know people are uh, you know by the grace of God are given the chance to make a choice and not predetermined to be tortured to, you know for all eternity in hell. Well, but you know the people who hold that view rooted and grounded in Scripture. And so we look at a broader scriptural principle. Um, I think when it comes to the Bible, of course, there are lots of things we could talk about, but over 700 times the word slavery is used in scripture. It's typically translated as servant um, in the English uh, translations because it's, it's, it's softened a bit. Softer, yeah. But over 700 times, it was just a part of you know, the world in which people lived. And so even though throughout history, this was an acceptable practice, there came a point where people said, wait a minute. That's even though that's accepted in the Bible and people could beat their slaves with rods. And as long as they didn't die within, you know, two days, they were, you know, it was okay because the slave was their property. We see a bigger principle at at play here. And that bigger principle has to do with love and justice and mercy and compassion. And so when I think about this, you know, my own changing on change, change views. I mean, I came to faith in a little Pentecostal church. We had a man who was gay, who lived across the street. Uh, he played an organ, you know, you could hear him playing his organ and we would all, we'd all tease the kids in youth group, you know, we would go out and we would, uh, his name was Merle and we called him Merle the squirrel. And he, you know, we teased about how he played his organ and, and, uh, I mean, just terrible things that we, that we said in the parking lot is we were so proud of ourselves as being deeply committed followers of Jesus while we were, you know, tearing somebody down. And, and, uh, and as a pastor, you know, for 31 years, you, you, you deal with people and you listen to their stories and you care about them. And, and it, it affects your way of understanding and reading the text when you're actually talking about real people that you love and care about and you hear their stories. And so for me, when I look at scripture, I'm, I'm going to ask, so what did Jesus say was the most important commandments that he said, summarized everything else. And it had to do with loving God and loving your neighbor and agape is selfless love. And, you know, John tells us that God is love and, you know, then we find what are the defining characteristics and attributes of God, and certainly holiness is one of those. And uh, but compassion, mercy, love, grace, all of these things. And the question I asked, you know, along the way, because I think I felt a great compassion for gay and lesbian people when we started the church. I remember early on, I had a young man uh, who moved to Kansas City from Alabama because he was afraid of living in his own town because he was gay. And uh, after, young African American uh, guy, and he, you know, he came to me. He said, "I just want to know, you know, is this a safe place for me to come? You don't have to agree with, you know, the fact that I'm gay, but I just want to know, like, will I be hurt here?" <laughs> and at the time, my view was probably a, a, well, definitely was more of a traditionalist view. And I'm like, "No, you won't be hurt here. I want you to know I love you, and God loves you, and I'm so grateful that you're here and you want to be part of this congregation." And and over and over again, you know, in a church this size, I mean, I've had hundreds of conversations with gay and lesbian people and parents of gay and lesbian kids. And we've had a dozen people in our congregation whose children took their own lives, uh, not while they were part of resurrection. They ended up here because this had happened when they were a part of another congregation or maybe not a part of a church at all. But, you know, kids who were gay and lesbian took their own lives and, and picked on and teased. And like, I don't think 
that God wants people to be hurt in the name of their religion, in the name of Christ. And I think that's happened an awful lot. And so anyway, all of those things together have led me to say, let's focus on what's what we know and what's crystal clear. And of course, we should be asking, so what is God's will for our sexuality? And I think even that has to do with agape. So I'll pause there. I'm sorry, I'm doing too much talking. No, it's a, it's all good. Won't won't you push a little bit more with where you just landed about you know what does God what do we need to understand what does God desire for our sexuality? Because um, I think that's that's part of the question that folks whether they're on the uh, the left side of the ledger, the right side of the ledger, conservative, progressive, or kind of in the middle and muddled right now. I yeah. think that's part of the conversation as well. Well, what what is godly or what does God desire from yeah. human sexuality? I think this is a really important question, Eddie, and I and it's one that I have been pushing people, especially on the progressive side. I think uh, that you know on the conservative side, it's easy to draw to draw boundaries and, and lines, and and I think sometimes those lines are drawn too narrowly. Sometimes on the progressive side, there are no lines. Or they're, or they're so broad that that anything can fit within them. And, and I do think when it comes to this, you know, part of what we have to recognize is Scripture is a mixed bag itself. So I had a conversation with a leading uh, traditionalist several years ago, a guy I really love, an older older gentleman uh, in the United Methodist Church. And, and he said, well, you know, Adam, if, it's, if we're accepting same-sex marriage now, then is it going to be polyamory in the future? And, uh, or, you know, uh, polygamy? And, and I'm like, well, at least on polygamy, you've got a biblical basis for it. <laughs> and, and I don't agree with polygamy. I don't, I don't think polyamory captures the highest and best ideals. But I think part of what we've got to be able to do, you know, the ethic of love is, is what needs to guide us. So the ethic of love goes a long way in helping us when it comes to, um, you know, children being sexually assaulted. Well, the ethic of love says that's just not, that's not okay. That that is harming another another human being, whether you realize it or not, you are harming another human being. That is inconsistent with the ethic of love. I think a case could be made that um, polyamory very seldom works as a way of expressing selfless love, and that that somebody ends up being secondary and having a secondary status, and it's very hard to maintain justice and love in that. I don't think what we can do is point to a verse in the Bible and say, see there, that's why this is going to be wrong. But instead to argue ethically from the perspective of what is agape, the central Christian ethic look like, and what does justice look like in these relationships? So when it comes to, you know, and, and I think everybody would agree, I mean, I don't know anybody who wouldn't agree who was a Christian that, that sexually abusing children in any way would be acceptable. We're all going to say that's really wrong. And we're going to say that's wrong because it's harming people and it's inconsistent with agape. I think we can make the same case on, on other types of sexual expression. And then I think we have to ask, so, you know, when we think about sex, are there ways in which we devalue or demean or um, profane something that was meant to be sacred and beautiful? And I think there are ways that we do that. I also think there's practices that, that might be, you know, two people might consent to them, but paint a picture that is, uh, you know, or fosters a sense of injustice or um, a failure to practice agape. And I think that's true when it comes to some forms of um, um, bondage and these kind of things, where they are giving expression to things that that if we brought them out in the open, we would say 
it's not appropriate for one human being to be in bondage to another human being. And so that might be play for you, but it may be the kind of play where we're playing with something that that is an, an unethical um, thing to be playing with or something we don't take light of. So I think there's ways for us to do to argue ethically from our scriptures, but I don't think it's enough to, to just point to a scripture and verse. I think what we have to ask, and I asked this when it came to Romans 126, um, in, in our, as we kicked off the Roman series, because I knew all of our members are going to be reading this, uh, where Paul speaks about, um, you know, people giving up their, you know, their ordinary, um, uh, not, I'm missing the language right now. I'd have to look it up, but we're trading their ordinary talks, passions, I think. Yeah, ordinary passions, but it wasn't ordinary. It was, uh, and I'm trying, I'll pull it up here. Um, but when Paul's speaking about this in, in Romans 126, and I said, you know, I read this and for the longest time I read it and I just took it literally that God was speaking, you know, that Romans was speaking, you know, Paul was giving accurately how God looked at gay and lesbian people. And then I began, you know, and then the more I read it and the more I got to know people, I thought the people that I know who are gay and lesbian in my church don't look like those who are having is unnatural was the term I was looking for, but exchanging, you know, natural sexual relations for unnatural, the people had burned with lust for each other. I wasn't seeing people who were burning with lust for each other. I wasn't seeing people who were seeking to degrade their own bodies or that were worshiping and serving the creation instead of the creator. I mean, all this is, is in the context of uh, idol worship. And I said, so as a pastor, I'll just tell you, you know, I just shared with my congregation, I had this text and I'd always read it one way. Then I, I knew people who were gay and lesbian, they didn't look like this. And so then I had to ask the question, what was Paul writing about? What was happening in the first century that he was addressing and and is that the same thing as we're talking about today? And and what did Paul or not Paul know or not know about what we think of as homosexuality today? And then that took me back to, you know, as many people have done, you look in here and this is all about idolatry. And so as you're looking at idolatry, and he's using this as an as an illustration, he's not even teaching doctrine here. He's although it's you could argue it's all teaching doctrine, but he's giving an illustration as to the as to the fundamental problem with all of us as human beings. And that is we're broken and sin is a problem. And so I said, you know, when I started looking into that, we start looking at, um, you know, that he's describing idolatry and, and worship in the temples. Then, you you know, I've been to Corinth where there were a thousand temple prostitutes, according to some, a thousand temple prostitutes on the Acropolis in Corinth, you know. So this was a, he's writing Romans from Corinth. Um, you know, in, in Rome, the, the practices, you know, there were certain places where there were temple prostitutes who were male and female. And, and you know, this goes all the way back to, you go back to scripture and you find uh, in the 900s BC, you know, that there were temple prostitutes in Jerusalem, male temple prostitutes in Jerusalem. And so, you know, this, this combining of, of spirituality and sexuality and, uh, and forms of sexuality that weren't typically allowed or practiced. I mean, all of this points to maybe something different than what we're talking about today. And so I, th I think when we're reading scripture, that's part of what we're asking is what you know, what did people know? Leviticus, you know, if, if it was written in the late Bronze Age, what did people know and not know? What was happening that the writer of Leviticus was responding to? And I take that all the way through to Paul in the New Testament. And again, I think the, the way we define everything else is through the ethic of love. And so, yeah, I don't um, I think we, no, sorry to interrupt. I, I think, you know, if you want a, a deeper dive, I mean, we're not going to be able to do every passage um, today and kind of do, you know, this isn't New Testament, Old Testament 101. Uh, but if you want a deeper a deeper sense of how Adam thinks about these things, you, you can kind of go back to some of the writing. I was going back and trying to figure out 
where you've where you've publicly written kind of on on these questions and is am I right in saying that 2001 was was uh, is it continuing the controversies was that the first time that you kind of addressed yeah confronting right confronting the controversies was my first book and that was uh, it came out in 2001 and it's since been revised because I changed that chapter a bit actually as my own thinking was changing over time in 2001 I would have said I was a traditionalist but with a with a deep heart of compassion for gay and lesbian people. And I think that's true where most thoughtful Christians who are more conservative are, is I think they, I think they feel the tension between, um, you know, I have my, I, you know, I love the Bible and I'm a person of this book and this matters to me. And at the same time, there are these people and I love them and I care about them. And so, you know, I talk to people all the time who are like, yeah, you know, I, I'm more conservative on this, but you know, like I have these good friends, I go vacation with them every year and they're gay. And I, you know, like, and so you have this, and you know, even one pastor I know of a large church who's you know uh, more conservative on this, who has a child who's gay. I mean, you know, thoughtful Christians who are more conservative are going to say, "Look, I feel it. You know, I I care deeply about about people who are gay and lesbian. I want them in the church, and I love them, and I don't think this is God's will for their lives. But I'm not going to beat up on them or pick on them." And that was my position in 2001. Is uh, we have to see the humanity of people. And we're called to love more than anything else. And at the same time, we our sacred text says, you know, and, and this is how I would have interpreted it at that time. And I think it's a p- pretty plain reading of the text is that um, same gender relationships are inconsistent with God's will or incompatible with Christian teaching, uh, or at least incompatible with the scripture as we have understood it. And so that's where I was in 2001. And, and over time, you know, I just found just the more people I knew, the more stories that I knew, and then the more I knew about the Bible. So you know, I graduated from seminary and had a pretty good grounding at Perkins uh, School of Theology for studying scripture, but you preached every week and you spend, you know, I've spent, I'm going to say conservatively, 20,000 hours studying the Bible. And the more you study it, the more you find there are challenging passages and not just about this issue. For me, one of the bigger issues was violence in the Bible. And so you have to go, okay, how do I make sense of these things that seem inconsistent with what Jesus has said um, about loving your enemy? Or about you know the character of God as merciful and compassionate, and and as you do that, you find yourself saying, "Okay, I have to recognize the Bible wasn't it wasn't dictated by God." There are some Christians who think that, but that's not generally how thoughtful Christians, even conservative and evangelical Christians, think about it. We recognize human beings wrote this book, and they wrote in a particular time and place, and the Spirit prompted them. The Spirit was at work in them and worked through them, and the Spirit works through them today when we when we read these words. But they were also people. And they lived in a particular time and place. And so we're not expecting the author of Genesis in chapters one, two, and three to understand modern cosmology when it comes to the universe. And we're going to give a pass there. We're going to say this is more, you know, it's poetic and it does capture, you know, it captures how people understood creation at the time. And it's making the main point, not how, but the fact that, you know, the who of creation. Well, it's possible that's true in a lot of other areas. And we've already done that with a lot of things where we've said, yeah, you know, Paul says this about women. Uh, being silent in the church, and he doesn't let a woman teach a man. But you know that was the culture and time, and so we see that differently today. We just there are many who struggle to do that when it comes to the six verses in the or six passages in the Bible that refer specifically uh, to same gender relationships. Yeah, I think I mean the trajectory of of your you know public writing on on these questions tends to in the background. There, kind of, I see two things that you're doing. One is to say. 
um, you know, the conversation typically is about biblical authority. And what I want to do is have a conversation about biblical interpretation right. on the one hand. And then the other, the other thing I see you doing kind of through the trajectory is, is to say what the conversation is about now are, you know, are we going to, as a church, bless monogamous, lifelong, loving, covenantal, same-sex relationships? And yep. when I look at scripture, what I'm seeing that's being condemned tends to be something other than that. I, am I reading you correctly? Is there, is, would that be kind of a, an accurate and charitable reading of what you're trying to do? No, Chris, I think that's exactly right. I think over time um, that you're right, that has been the trajectory. And in a number of my books, I've, I've written about this also on my, on my uh, blog post, people could go and read it at core.org or, or excuse me, not core.org, adamhamilton.com. You could go to my blog post here and just research uh, LGBTQ or homosexuality or same gender marriage, and there's probably ten essays that will come up there. Um, but you know, in each of the books, in a number of the books, probably five of my books, there has been you know an attempt to address that. When Christians get it wrong is another one. Again, the second uh, version of, uh, of confronting the controversies, making sense of the Bible was probably the most you know comprehensive in terms of the you know how you get to the point you can have that conversation. But I do think when we look at, you know, when I look at couples, so I have, you know, we've got a pretty good sized congregation. And if 5% of the, let's just say 3% of the population are gay and lesbian, then I have, you know, out of, out of, uh, you know, 25,000 members or whatever we have that, you know, I've got 750 gay and lesbian people in our congregation. But when I asked the church one time, I said, how many of you have uh, family members who are gay and lesbian? And there's, you know, there's like half of them, you know, it might be a child or a, you know, cousin or a niece or nephew. Uh, how many of you have friends? And then, you know, more, by the time I was done, like almost everybody had somebody they cared about who was gay and lesbian. And, uh, and, and part of what we're recognizing is like in our church, we've got gay and lesbian couples have been together for 30 years uh, or, or more uh, raised children together as a family, you know, and, you know, who are faithful there, you know, they're, they're, they're just faithful in their walk with Christ and what they're striving to do and how they live and their marriages will at times look far healthier than you know many of the many of the um, heterosexual couples that I have known and so I'm not comparing them I'm not saying it's better or worse I'm just saying I've seen pictures of of healthy loving Christian couples who have been married in a monogamous relationship raising families and uh, who are in a same gender relationship and so I do think part of the question is you know what does the church do with that are we going to tell them to get divorced after they've been you know, because we're reading scripture a particular way, are we going to recognize that there are three to 5% of the population who are wired differently or their life experience, you know, how to shape their psyche and their orientation? And are we going to call them to live lives of holiness that looks like loving selflessly and sacrificially in sickness and in health, you know, to love and cherish until we are parted by death? And I think there's at least... At, in in my thinking, that is where the church can and should be. I know that uh, you have received um, a, a fair amount of criticism through the years, and that's probably putting it pretty uh, pretty lightly. I was actually at uh, the 2019 uh, General Conference in St. Louis, and I know that uh, just even on the stage as you and others spoke, there were a lot of, you know, it, it's just a hard conversation to have, particularly 
um, when you take a, a stand um, as you have? How how have you dealt with that criticism? How have you hoped to respond to that criticism over the course of the years? Yeah. Well, so I remember in uh, 1990, no, I'm sorry, 2004, I preached a sermon that was really unsettling for a lot of uh, people here at Resurrection, in which I just came out and said, you know, I, I thought I had a, I thought I knew where I stood on this, and uh, my mind has changed and my thinking has changed, and it's not all cr- crystal clear to me. But what is crystal clear is that the is that the driving ethic of the Christian faith is love, and we're going to love and welcome people here, uh, gay or straight. And um, it, you know, it, it, if you would read the manuscript, it's in my book, Seeing Gray in a World of Black and White. You wouldn't think it was that dramatic today, but you know, we lost like 800 family or not 800 families, 800 people in the year after that from the church who left. And that was, that was terribly painful. You know, at that point I was in my, how old was I? I was in my thirties. And, uh, and, you know, I realized, okay, if I, if I actually preached this, this, the church of the resurrection will never grow to the size I thought it was going to grow to. It was never about numbers, but you know, you'd done projections and I thought we were seeing so many people coming to the church and, you know, we're in a, pretty conservative community. And I realized, okay, that, you know, that won't ever happen. And so there was a grief in that, but there was more of a grief of just seeing people who, who would leave the church, who you'd baptize them, brought them into faith. And, you know, well, I don't trust you to teach my children the Bible anymore. And I'm like, wow. Okay. And I, you know, went through a period of uh, depression, uh, probably six or eight months where I'm, I was just so stinking depressed thinking, have I, and I would pray, I mean, every day I'd go take these prayer walks, you know, God, have I disappointed you? Have I failed you? Did I miss the mark? You know, I'm so sorry if I did. I mean, I, I, you know, my driving aim is to speak, you know, is to, is to honor you and what I do. And, and, uh, it took about eight months to get past that. That was again, back in my thirties. And, and, you know, we ended up having, we had 800 people leave and there were probably a thousand people who joined who said, this is the kind of church I was looking for. Is a church that takes the Bible seriously and calls people to follow Christ and is, you know, evangelical in its in its approach and you know calling people to serious faith and recognizes that uh, Scripture is complex and that people come before rules and that's going to welcome my child. Uh, so anyway, so I, I would say that was that was then. Today, I, you know, there are parts of it that can be difficult sometimes, but. I'm 57 and I'm, I'm like, you know what? I, um, I feel like I, you know, I I have a place to, I, I feel compelled that I I do want to speak up and need to speak up and I can afford to speak up. I'm probably not going to be terminated from the church, the resurrection, having been here 31 years. If I was, that would be okay too. I've, I've said, you know, if, if for some reason the church felt like I wasn't the right pastor because of this, I even told my congregation that we did a, some of our members were saying, you know, well, we should pastor. You don't realize, you know, the silent majority is not with you on this. Like, okay. So we had a, we had an all church gathering and we had, I think we had, I could be wrong. I think it was 1400 people show up and other people were online. And, and, uh, and I walked through, you know, the categories we've talked about in the Methodist church of, you know, traditional compatibilist, uh, progressive compatibilist, traditional incompatibilist, progressive incompatibilist. I kind of walked through those and, I said, you know, some have said that, uh, that maybe I don't understand where y'all are at. And I said, so I want to give you a chance to identify where are you? And we used a Minty poll, you know, use people mm-hmm. use their phones and we did it. And I was like, I'm standing there thinking, depending on what, and this was just like three years ago, 
depending on what, it was right after 2019 <clears throat> general conference. I thought, depending on what they say, I might have to leave. I mean, I didn't tell them this, but I'm like, if they, if they said that they were really traditional incompatibilists, or even if the majority of them were traditional compatibilists, I, I, you know, I, I just don't think I'm, I may not be the right fit anymore for this congregation, which is hard when you started it. And you've been there for almost 30 years at that time. And, you know, the, the numbers were the vast majority of our people were uh, progressive compatibilist on this issue. And um, then there was a chunk that were traditional compatibilists. And what they were saying was 97% of them said, we can be in a church with people who disagree. And this is where I stand, but I understand why somebody stands in another place. And the vast majority of those were people who said, we want to welcome everybody and we believe it's okay for them to be married. So I was really relieved when I saw that. But um, but yes, there have been, I've lost friends. There's been churches that won't read my books anymore. Um, you know, the pastors have said, you can't use Adam Hamilton books in your Sunday school class anymore. And, you know, I'm disappointed in that, but I, I feel like, okay, if the pastor of the largest church in the denomination can't speak up, then who can? And if somebody, you know, and if, if the church let me go, I would write books and travel and speak and that'd be okay. But it doesn't look like they want to do that right now. So I'm, I'm kind of glad. <laughs> I kind of like my job. Well, as we move towards the, the end of our time, what's at stake here? Uh, what's at stake in this conversation between the church and the LGBTQ community? In your mind, your heart, what, what is the thing that we need to be paying attention to? That's a really great question. And I think, uh, and I, I think it, I would maybe say it in what's at stake in the, in the conversation the church is having with itself. Um, and I, th- I believe what's at stake. I don't want to, I don't want to state this too harshly because, you know, I know so many of the traditional incompatibilists who are such great pastors and leaders and they're doing great work in their churches and they're working for justice and kindness and compassion. And, and they have a particular way of reading this text and they're trying to be biblically faithful and faithful to Christ. And I really value that because I want to be, I, I'm trying to do the same thing, but I think at stake for the churches, if we continue to have a book of discipline and I've got mine sitting right here in front of me, if we continue to have a book of discipline that says the practice of, it, of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. And then we have penalties that are set up for people who are trying to do ministry with gay and lesbian people who read the text uh, more broadly and more inclusively. I think our soul's at stake in that as a, as a church or as the church, as, as the body of Christ in the United States. I think 20 years from now, things will be even more, I, mean, I think it'll be even clearer that, that we have got that reading the text in a more inclusive way in the light of justice, love, and mercy and welcoming families who are not traditional families, that's got to be where we're going. And I think there are places where they won't, you know, there'll be, there'll be parts of the church that won't, but I don't. So I think about the, in the United Methodist church, the, uh, and I know you have a broader reader or listenership than this, but you know, there's a, the, there's a part of the church that's going to be breaking away to form a new denomination. And I wish them well. And again, I know and love many of the people who are there. And, uh, and so I want to bless them as they go. I think it would be hard. I, I wouldn't want to be trying to lead that movement. I think it works okay now, but if, if you look at seminary students, for instance, and you look to see where are your pastors coming from, uh, I, I met with 
young clergy and seminary students at a number of our seminaries over the last four or five years. I met with young clergy in 40 different annual conferences over the last 10 years. And I had a hard time finding people who were traditional incompatibilists. Almost all of them said, I understand, you know, even if I'm more conservative, I understand why somebody comes out in another place and I, and they could be right. And so I'm thinking if you're looking for a young clergy, where are they going to come from? I think if you're looking at the future of the church and evangelism and communities, that's going to be harder over time because I think our world will have settled the issue that we're going to welcome and embrace um, different kinds of families and gay and lesbian people. And um, so I, I, I think this conversation is about the future of the church and I am, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessary for everyone in the church to be in the same place. <clears throat> that won't happen at church, of the resurrection, we're not all in the same place. And so we've got to figure out how do we make room for people who have differing views, but can say, we can agree to disagree. And we're, we're all faithful Christians and we're reading the Bible in slightly different ways. And we're going to love people. Um, but I think if you're going to say, I'm sorry, but there's only one way to read the Bible and it's my way to read the Bible. And that way says that, uh, the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. I think that's a much harder road to hoe uh, going forward in the future. And it's again not about to go back to where we started. It's not about uh, what is the you know what does the survey say that people are saying. It really for me is about what does the heart of God say about gay and lesbian people and what the church's ministry should look like with them. And when I think about Jesus, uh, I think there's a good case that can be made that he would understand why, what makes somebody gay or lesbian and what makes them straight. And that he would want people to be, he would recognize as Genesis says, it's not good for, for someone to be alone and that there would be provision for people to be married and in healthy, beautiful relationships who are gay and lesbian in the church. And um, so, but, but I also want to say, I had a conversation with a, with the United Methodist pastor this last week. And I, you know, he said, I just don't know if the United Methodist Church, is there going to be a room, is there going to be room for evangelicals like me, you know, in the future United Methodist Church? And I said, well, first of all, and when it comes to evangelicals, there better be because Methodism is the inheritor of the 18th century evangelical revival, and we all ought to be evangelical. But when it comes to conservative or traditionalists on same-gender marriage, I would fight for our church to be a church that still makes room for pastors to have their own understanding of how they read these scriptures and their own conscience provided they're welcoming everybody. So I don't want to be a part of a church that's telling traditional, uh, traditional compatibilists, there's no place for you here. There is a place for you here. You are valued and loved. And provided that we're able to say, and I understand I could be wrong and you might be right, but this is how I see the scripture as at this point. And for you guys, I don't know where you're at, but in my life, I didn't always believe what I believe today. And that took a long time and a lot of theological thinking about scripture and pastoral ministry with people that led my views to change. And so I want to make room for people who may not be, you know, maybe where I was 25 years ago, or else if we'd had, you know, or else I might not have been a United Methodist 25 years ago, if there wasn't room for people like me then. So what about, what about for folks who are, who've given up on the church kind of all together? Um, what's, what's a word for maybe someone who is kind of listening into a conversation about the church and the soul of the church and all the rest, but they've kind of, you know, are suspicious of the whole conversation, um, may just be on the outside looking in. What would, yeah. what would be, uh, your word, uh, for them today? Yeah. Well, I would say a couple of things. First of all, I think we were made for community. 
And when it comes to religion, if you have faith, if you, you know, if you believe in God and you want to follow Jesus, or you're at least spiritually curious, um, there are a lot of great churches out there where you can do that. And, and there are a lot of churches, an increasing number of churches out there who are saying, you know, our views are changing on how we look at LGBTQ persons. And we want to welcome everybody and we're learning and growing. And there are other churches who have already said, you know what, we are a place where everyone is valued and loved, including God's children who are gay, lesbian, transgender, um, and queer. And so I, I would just say there's a lot of amazing churches out there. And there's something that there's something important about being in community with people as you're doing faith together. Uh, we need the church and in the church was Jesus idea. Uh, you know, he had this idea of, of building the church and, and a community of people of his people. And so, I, you know, I think about at resurrection, all of the ways our people are seeking to serve God in the community together. And I'm, I'm proud of it and I'm excited about it. And I know that we're doing more together than any of us would be doing alone. And that includes caring for each other in the midst of, I mean, I just, just a few minutes ago, you know, with uh, you know, praying for and caring for somebody who's about to lose her dad or, or, you know, thinking about people who are going through grief support or depression or, you know, uh, so all, all those kind of things that we do together in community. I think about the ways that we serve uh, low-income people in Kansas City and our church's role in caring for, you know, uh, school children and, and starting preschools and, and caring for immigrants and, you know, ministry in the prisons and all these things that we do together. And then I think what happens when you gather for worship and you sing and you pray and, Somewhere you hear a message that's from scripture and it touches your heart. And I find, I find that being in community, being in worship, reading scripture, practicing the spiritual disciplines together with other people helps me become more the person God wants me to be, to grow in my faith. And I find greater, I'm a better husband, a better father, a better employee, a better employer, a better human being when I'm in community. Uh, doing life together. And that's what the church is all about. So I just say, don't give up on the church. It's easy to understand. And, you know, you started quoting the, mentioning the uh, unchristian book uh, that Barna put out some years ago, David Kinnaman. And there's, it's easy to look and say, well, you know, churches are filled with hypocritical people and they're anti-gay and they're, you know, all they want is your money and all that. And you go to church and it almost seems like that is the way it is. But really, when you look a little deeper, you find that isn't really the way it is. Most people who come to church are people who are yearning to become what God wants them to be. They, you know, every week I hope that I send people out with a deep desire and inspired to be more the person God wanted them to be when they left and when they came in. <clears throat> and I would say this is also a time where because of COVID, there are a lot of churches that are online. And when you're on, you know, you can check out church and almost, you know, sort of be a part of the community before you ever step foot in the door. And if you have anybody listening and they're looking for a church, you guys might tell them where you're at. And, you know, we're at Church of the Resurrection, cor.org. And our services are online every weekend. And we have people from across the country and around the world who listen in and uh, find their, you know, their lives changed by, by worship and growing and connecting with Christ. And ours is OUUMC.org. <laughs> if you Good. want to check us out. The, Adam, I want to thank you uh, for your time. You're always generous with your time. I want to share, I want to encourage you as you go. I was talking with a friend uh, this morning uh, about, you know, we were doing this podcast today, and this is someone who sees this issue very differently uh, than you. And and he told me, he said, you know, I see it differently, but I'm always thankful for his generosity 
of spirit. Always thankful for the ways that you keep the door open to conversations and um, and just as you've done several times uh, th- throughout the podcast, just, you know, how can we be the church even if we differ? So I, I just thank you for that perspective um, and, thank you. and your time time with us today. Well, I appreciate you guys, and I appreciate the thoughtful conversations that you uh, that you foster, and I'm really honored that you've invited me to be on your program today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Wait. If you like what you heard today, uh, feel free to share the podcast with other people that are in your network. Leave us a review. That's always really helpful. Subscribe, and you can follow us on our social media channels. If you have any suggestions or guests you'd like us to interview or anything you'd like to share with us, you can send us an email at info at theweightpodcast.com.